0: This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. If you are new here, and a number of you are, recent, uh, recent weeks, and we've, a number of new folks have been coming, so let me welcome you, um, but also just to let you know that uh, our typical approach uh, is to teach through books of the Bible. So what we do is we just take a passage of Scripture, and we read it, and try to explain it and understand it, and then apply it to our lives. It's a very, very simple approach uh, to the Scripture um but it is one that is a, a bedrock value for us we want to know what god has to say and so we want to look at his word so that's uh, that's what we'll be doing again today um and uh, glad to do so let me thank you before i do many of you have asked me uh, i got messages from you and then today as well asking how i was feeling uh, there was a an announcement that i, I was sick it doesn't always happen every time i'm sick we don't share that with the whole church <laughs> and uh oh boy you know uh but we had to we had to reschedule a meeting so that affected a lot of people and uh so thank you for your concern and your prayers and care i am out of the woods of the flu i think um just a bit weak but i am not feeling sick so i'm thankful for that thanks for your prayers and thank you that you cared and asked i appreciate that Well, we are in Acts 2, and last week Rob uh, opened up the first part of Acts 2, which is actually what happens on the day of Pentecost. It's a historic day in the history of the world. That's right, it's a historic day in the history of the world. Jesus has already ascended and has left the disciples, and he's told them to pray and wait for the Holy Spirit. And then uh, they, once the holy Spirit comes they 're going to be witnesses right where they are and ultimately to the ends of the earth and that 's the promise he gives them so they 're in this room praying on the day of pentecost it 's nine o 'clock in the morning, and uh, all of a sudden, there is this audio visual experience there is this Well, it's really a crazy experience. I don't know that anything like it's ever happened before or since, quite like it happened there. So there's 120 of them praying. There are hundreds of thousands of Jews gathered in Jerusalem because they gather there three times a year for these feasts, and this is the Feast of Pentecost. So the place is bustling with activity. It's it's a party. It's a family reunion. It's a religious festival. It's a vacation, all in one. There's just multiple things happening, and uh, so as the streets, I'm assuming, are bustling with people, there is this 120 folks that are in the upstairs of a house praying, and then here's what happens. There is a a sound and an experience like a rushing wind that invades the whole house. So this is not like any prayer time you've ever been at. This isn't every head bowed and every eye closed politely. Just This is a hurricane in the house. So there is the sound of hurricane force winds, and then there is fire. Uh, fire comes into the room and divides into like tongues of fire, little flames of fire on top of everybody's head. So there's hurricane force wind sounds, but it doesn't blow out the fire, which is on everybody's head. So people are, this is this is people on fire at the prayer meeting, you might say. They're on fire for the Lord, uh, literally. So the flames burning above their heads. And then here's what happens. They start speaking in languages they have not learned. They don't know the languages, but they stand up and they start speaking in languages and they're proclaiming the works of God. How do we know they're proclaiming the works of God if they don't know the languages? Well, because everybody out on the street hears what's going on. And these people are from all over all over the planet, they're from different places, they all come from a native land that has a native tongue, but they've all come to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. And so they are hearing these people standing up, they, they, they know they're Galileans, and they can hear them standing up and speaking all of these different languages that they could not know. And they're blown away. Some people are perplexed, some people say they're drunk. There's all this differing opinions about what is going on, but the one thing that is certain is this is out of the ordinary. Likely, you know, I don't know, likely they could have heard the sound, perhaps they see the fire, we don't know, but we know for a fact they hear the languages. So people are saying, I'm hearing them speaking my language and there's no way they know that. And they're praising God, and so people are gathered for this experience at Pentecost, and then Peter stands up after all of this happens, and he declares uh, what is going on. So in verse 14 of chapter 2, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, "'Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words.' And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, And wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says, concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing what God has sworn in an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone, the Lord, our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation so that those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about three thousand souls. Let's pray. God, as we look at this first sermon for the church, Lord, we ask that, that you would speak through this word, Lord, this God-breathed word, this scripture, this recording of this event. We pray that you would speak to us today, that your Holy Spirit would communicate truth to us today, and that the very message that was effective 2,000 years ago would be effective today in this room among us Lord. We pray that you would stir our hearts towards faith in God. We pray that you would raise our esteem and our worship for Jesus. We pray for those who don't know you that today they would they would come to know you. We pray for those who do know you that that they would respond with fresh faith and gratitude for what you've done. God we pray that you would fix our attention where it should be fixed on Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, and exalted. And so now we ask that you would pour your spirit afresh upon us and give us ears to hear and give us hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this event where Peter stands up, he really does three things. The first thing he does is he explains this phenomena. What's been going on? He tells everybody what's going on, and he, he, he roots it in the Scripture. He says this, is, this was prophesied in the, in the Old Testament. And then the next thing he does is, after explaining the events, is he explains Jesus. He tells them that this is all about Christ, and he walks through uh, the work of Christ. And the third thing he does is he explains to them how to respond, um, and they do. So he explains what's happening with the the dramatic effects, the audiovisual experience here. Um, he explains Jesus, and then he explains how they should respond. First of all, he explains the events. This is going to be the first of about 15 sermons or 15 speeches that are in the book of Acts, so it's probably worth saying a little bit about the speeches in Acts. Is this literally what Peter said? Uh, We have the recording of the sermon, so it's good to know, is this literally what he said? Well, um, it it is what he said, but it's very likely condensed. I mean, it takes about three to four minutes to read it. So probably he didn't speak three minutes and 3,000 were saved, though many of you might encourage me to try that, that if you would just speak three minutes, maybe we would see dramatic revival results as well. And I don't know if 3,000 would be saved before 50 would be a lot happier uh, if you'd do that. Uh, So he probably didn't speak three minutes. matter of fact, the text itself tells us that. Look at verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So he probably said quite a bit. This is what he said in a rather condensed uh, in condensed form. So it's true. It's accurate. um, But it doesn't. It doesn't record every single word that he spoke, as verse 40 tells us. So that's something to remember as we go through these passages and see, read sermons or speeches. So what Peter does uh, is he stands, verse 14, he stands with the eleven and lifts up his voice and addresses the crowd. Well, where does he do this? Presumably, I'm guessing outside, maybe on the street, I don't know, but they're in this house On the upper room, there's there's people that are gathered. We know that three thousand respond, so there must be a huge gathering of people. It must have been some noise, uh, some speech, some event. Uh, He says what you at one point he says what you see and hear. So maybe they saw the flames. We don't know what all they saw, Um, but uh, at any rate, he stands. I'm guessing outside, um, I guess he could have spoken out of a window, I don't know, but he stands and addresses this huge crowd. And he he starts with an explanation of the sobriety of the participants. So the first thing he says is, men of Judea and all who dwell in in Jerusalem, let it be known to you, give ears to my words. So listen up. I'm going to explain to you and tell you what is happening here. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only the third hour of the day. The day started, uh, the hours of the day started at 6 a.m., so the third hour of the day is 9 a.m. And so his point is, it's nine in the morning, these people aren't drunk. Before we move past that, I think it's important to ask, why would they even assume that? I mean, what they have heard is people declaring the praises of God in a language they couldn't know. So let me ask you, if you were in a foreign country where no one spoke English, and somehow you saw a group of people, and somehow you could know, like these folks knew, somehow you could know that this group of people, that no one knew English. Okay, let's let's say you knew. There's nobody here who naturally knows English, but somebody just starts blurting out in flawless English, and you can understand what they're saying. Would your first assumption be they had too much to drink? I mean, really. If someone spoke a language they did not know, is the first thing you would assume, oh, drunk, I knew it. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine that. So what is the assumption of drunkenness here? Well, I think it it doesn't tell us, but I can only assume that when the Spirit comes with power in this way, people are affected such that they they are different. They're behaving and acting differently such that the assumption is they are under the influence. What, What could that be? Well, my observation of people who are drunk in public is they're loud. They're probably loud. They're bold. Sometimes people that, that are drunk in public, they, they speak more loudly than they should be speaking. They think they're speaking to a, large, a small group, but they're speaking much louder. So probably they're gathered around the house and they hear people yelling out The truth of God in a way that would be unusual. Who's just going to be gathering and yelling these things in other uh, languages? Because they all had to hear them. They're in a house. They had to hear them. It must have been loud. It must have been bold. Perhaps there was an excitement, an unusual passion that at 9 a.m. wouldn't be characteristic of normal people. and so there is a freedom, perhaps, an excitement, a passion, maybe even a joy that is accompanying this experience. So I believe there's a boldness that accompanies the filling with the Spirit that you see this throughout the book of Acts. There is a boldness. And if someone is bold in this manner at 9 a.m. in the morning, there could be an assumption, wow, you know, tone it down. Maybe, maybe, they're, maybe they're drinking early at the festivities, and they're drunk. It's not the language itself. That's not a sign of drunkenness, knowing languages that you do not know. But there must be something about their demeanor. So the text doesn't say, but the book of Acts talks a lot about boldness. And so I'm going to assume there is loud speech, there is a declaration of the works of God, that these people draw the conclusion they are under the influence of of something. This is why we see in Acts five, I'm sorry, in Ephesians five, Paul says, Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. One is a an influence that that dulls your senses, alcohol, when you're drunk. The other is an influence that alerts your senses and fills you with God, being filled with the, the Spirit. And so we're to be alert, we're to be bold. And we certainly see that from Peter. Peter's going to stand up and address these people. Fifty days prior to this, Peter denies Jesus three times with fear. Once to a servant girl. To a little girl, Peter denies that he even knows Jesus. And now he's been filled with the Spirit, and he's going to stand up in front of all these people who murdered Jesus, who killed Jesus, and he's going to stand up and represent him obviously putting his life on the line. He's not going to hide and be afraid of a servant girl. He's going to stand in front of a whole crowd that could beat him, arrest him, crucify him. He could have the same fate. but he's going to do it. Why? Because he's under the influence. He's bold. He's filled with the Spirit. He's going to declare loudly and unapologetically the work of Jesus. And so that's the filling of the Spirit. It has an emboldening power. So what happens, he stands up and he says, everything that's going on here was talked about in the prophet Joel. And so beginning in verse 17, he's going to quote Joel 2 verses 28 to 32, Joel 2, 28 to 32. The prophet Joel wrote to the people of Israel many years before this, and they had had a locust infestation. And so all their crops were eaten and Joel appeals to the people and says, hey, uh, repent, Come back to the Lord. Repent. This is a judgment from God that your crops are being eaten. And then he tells them there's coming a day when the judgment of God will be final, the great day of the Lord. He talks about all these cosmic signs, like uh, down in verse 20, the, the, there, there'll, um, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So most people think that's talking about the end of the world. I agree that that's talking about the return of the Lord. So there'll be a day where there's these, these cosmic cataclysmic signs of judgment. So he's telling them, Look, there's coming a great day of the Lord, so you should repent now. But before the great day of the Lord, something's going to happen, he tells Joel. And Peter says, what he says is going to happen is happening before your very eyes. What's going to happen? Verse 17. In the last days, not the great day, the final day, but the last days. In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your young men shall see visions your old men dream dreams and even on my male servants and female servants in those days i will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy so here's what he's saying he's telling the people of israel look there's coming a day and here's what's going to happen i'm going to pour out the holy spirit on all my people and he's saying this is what's happening this is that that he spoke about right before your eyes the holy spirit's not just going to be on the prophets the Holy Spirit's not just going to be on the priests. The Holy Spirit's not just going to be on the anointed king. The Holy Spirit's going to be on poured out on all of God's people, male and female. That explains why women are, are uh, praising God in these unknown languages. They're hearing the women do so. And he's saying, Joel said this would happen. He promised there's a day when men and women alike are "...would prophesy. Also, young and old alike. Your young men shall see visions, your old men will dream dreams." Even on my male servants, I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So even slaves, even servants who trust in the Lord will be filled with the spirit and will be inspired, will be empowered to speak for God. So what he's doing here is he's taking the Joel passage, which says there's coming a day when all my people will have the power to prophesy. All my people will be empowered by God and can speak uh, encouraging words, uh, from God, that they can speak, the the, the Lord will empower their very speech. Now, he's probably taking this speaking in languages and applying it to that. He's saying this is a sort of prophetic speech, we could say. They're speaking something that the Lord is giving them. It's an inspired thing, and they are speaking it to God and declaring the works of God in another language. But he's sort of putting this all in the same family of Uh, Spirit-empowered speech, dreams and visions, prophecy. He puts it all together and says these are all sort of gifts that will characterize the last days when the Spirit is poured out. So when are the last days? That's a big question. Are we in the last days? The answer is yes. They started 2,000 years ago. This is what he's saying. These are in the last days. This is what I'm going to. This is what I'm going to do. So, notice he says, verse sixteen. This is what was uttered through Joel in the last days. Peter's saying, today we enter the last days. Today we enter a new season. Pardon the term, a new age. We enter the age of the Spirit. We enter the time of the Spirit, where the Spirit is poured out on all of God's people. You could be a slave, you could be a man, a woman, you could be young or old. The Spirit of God is here to fill the people of God for the purpose of God. And so this is a gloriously good day. In those days, I will pour out my Spirit. And he's telling them, we've hit that day. And it's not a drizzle, it's not a light mist, it's not a... A little bit of a sprinkle, it's a downpour on the day of Pentecost. Jesus is doing this, we we'll see later in the passage. He's pouring out His Spirit. And the last days have been inaugurated at this point. And then here's the glory of the last days, which we're living in. The glory is verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. It's going to be the Gentiles. You don't have to be a Jew. You don't have to be part of Israel. Everyone who says to the Lord, and he's talking about the Lord Jesus here, everyone who says to the Lord, save me, and believes will be saved. Everyone who desires rescue will be rescued. Everyone who wants their sins forgiven and will come in repentance and faith will have their sins forgiven. Everybody who wants to be made new, everybody who wants the Spirit of God to live in them can have him. This is a glorious good day. And he's saying, so this is what you're seeing. This isn't drunkenness. This is fulfilled prophecy. This is the Spirit being poured out. And that's ultimately what's going to happen here. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's going to now tell them how to be saved. He's going to start with telling them they need to be saved and tell them how they can be saved. The first thing he does is explains the phenomena. This is is the, last, the inauguration of the last days, the pouring out of the Spirit on everyone who would believe. And so we still live in those days. We still live in the days where the Spirit is active, the Spirit is present, the Spirit is within us, the Spirit empowers the preaching of the gospel, the Spirit is saving everyone who wants to be saved, everyone who calls upon His name, and the Spirit is imparting gifts according to His will, as He desires, when He desires, until the great day when He returns, and there's no more need for spiritual gifts, for we shall see Him as He is. The next thing he does is he explains Jesus. He explains this phenomenon. Now he's going to explain Jesus. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Now, let's watch the pattern here, because this is excellent. Well, it's the Word of God, so of course it's excellent. Um, it is the inspired Word of God, but it's, it's very instructive to us. After he explains this phenomenon, which we would never do, need to do in a gospel presentation, uh, you know, unless a rushing wind comes in and you have this, if there's tongues of fire over your head, you might want to offer some explanation, but probably that's not happening to us. So after the explanation, what he does next is a model for us. It's a model for us in terms of what to communicate. And here's what you're going to see is that he just preaches Jesus. That's what he does. He just preaches Jesus from every angle. And he starts with the life of Jesus. That's what he starts with. These, this Jesus of Nazareth, he's a real person in history. You didn't have a last name in those days. Uh, you just had a first name, and you were known as your first name and then sometimes so-and-so's son. So he could have been known as Jesus Joseph's son or something like that. Uh, but you were just known by your, your father, son of so-and-so, uh, or you were known from the town you came in. Came from. He was from Nazareth. There's only about 400 people, evidently, that lived in Nazareth. So he came from a podunk town And uh, they're placing him in history. He was from that town. People there would know him. He may have been the only Jesus in town. That's a pretty common name, so probably not. But he was called Jesus of Nazareth. So he could have been the only, uh, only Jesus in the town. So he's being identified. And then he's saying, this man was attested to you. God demonstrated himself through this Jesus. Jesus who's fully God and fully man. God demonstrated himself to him. He did mighty works. He did wonders. He did signs. So he did works of God. He did healings, mass feedings, miraculous feedings. He did all this stuff. Uh, He did signs. What's a sign? It's when he would do a miracle and the sign pointed to who he was. The sign signified that he was God, that he had come as the Messiah to rescue people from their sin, to be our Savior, all these kinds of things. So he did these signs, and he says to them, he did them in your midst. You yourselves know he was here 50 days ago. At, at At the Passover feast, he was here. I mean, the people he's talking to, they saw Jesus. Many of them would have heard him teach. Many of this crowd would have probably seen a miracle of his. They would have all heard of the miracles, Many may have seen a miracle. There are people in this crowd that probably had personal conversations with Jesus. It was certainly likely. He was here 50 days ago. He was well-known. He was a controversial figure. He was killed. Everybody knew about this. He was executed. So there's probably people in the crowd that actually had a one-on-one Q&A with Jesus. Talked to him at some point. He's saying, you guys know this this person I'm speaking of, this Jesus. Think about his life. Think about what he did. He did signs and wonders, and that was proof from God that he was who he said he was. The next thing he does after talking about his life is talk about his death. Look at verse 23, the death of Jesus. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So now he's saying this Jesus who God sent, God's doing all this stuff, through him, in him, and through him, you killed him. You crucified him. He's not mincing any words here. He's not making sure that everybody feels really good about themselves, and he is putting responsibility where it is on, on all of us. You, God attested that he was from God, and you killed him. Now, why was he killed? Why was he crucified? Well, first of all, it was God's plan. This was God's definite plan according to the foreknowledge of God. God knew ahead of time this would happen. But when the Bible speaks about foreknowledge, God's foreknowledge, it's not just that he's aware of something that will happen. It's that he's behind it. Uh, He's behind it. He knows personally what will happen. It's his, uh, Peter says, definite plan. So why is Jesus crucified? Because God the Father wanted him crucified. God the Father delivered him up. As a sacrifice so that he would die in our place for our sins like a lamb as a substitute. So this happened because God ordained it to be so. God willed it to be so. But it also happened because you crucified and killed him. You. So you're responsible. And it also happened because it it occurred at the hands of lawless men. So... God the Father didn't physically crucify Jesus, and neither did the Jews in the crowd. He said, you crucified him, but they didn't literally do that. Literally, lawless men, that is, men without the law, Gentiles did it. It was Roman soldiers that nailed him to a cross and beat him. It was Pilate that washed his hands of the matter and allowed him to be sentenced to death. So it was a a combination of factors And here's here's a prime example in the Bible where the will of God and the responsibility and the will of man flow together. They flow together. So God can ordain that Jesus be killed, and men can still freely hate Jesus and kill him and be held responsible. How how does that work? That's a mystery. But the Bible is clear that, that predestination... For, that he ordained God's definite plan. I mean, could it have been any other way? If God plans, has a definite plan that Jesus would be crucified, could it be any other way? No. That was God's plan. But you crucified him. You hated him. You opposed him. You freely of your own opposed him, and the two worked together. And so God's sovereignty and man's responsibility flow perfectly here together, though it's a mystery. I can't explain I can't explain how that works, but the Bible is clear. This is one of the clearest texts in the Bible, to my thinking, on the uh, uh, on the sovereignty of God and on the free will of man and of them coming together. That man is responsible for crucifying Jesus, and God is responsible for willing it so both at the same time. That's worth our bowing and saying, wow, how, how is... How is all of that possible only in the power and in the mind of God? So he dies. talks about his life, talks about his death. Next he talks about the resurrection of Jesus, verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then what he does, so he says God raised Jesus from the dead. And then he, what he does next is he takes something that David wrote in Psalm 16. And he quotes this this psalm, and he says that though David is speaking in this psalm, it's a prophecy. David's really speaking about Jesus. So they're all familiar with the psalms. He quotes one of their psalms, and he says, look, that text is referring to Jesus. So he's giving them the Bible here. Look down at uh, verse 27. This is David speaking in the psalm. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy ones see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, when David writes that, is he ultimately speaking about himself? Well, look how Peter answers. Brothers, I say to you with confidence, verse 29, about the patriarch David, that he died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. So when David says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, Hades is the realm of the dead. You will not abandon my soul to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. He's not talking about himself. David was abandoned, uh, so to speak, at this point. We all know where David's tomb is, is what he's saying. He's saying David was speaking about Jesus. He's saying to the Jews, your own scriptures, our own scriptures, point to the one who would come and be resurrection, resurrected. Verse 30, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw, David foresaw, Psalm 16, and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Jesus was not abandoned to the realm of dead. His, his flesh, his body did not see corruption. He didn't decay. He didn't decompose. He wasn't there long enough. He came back to life. And he's saying, this is in your Bible. This is in our Bible. So he's giving everybody a Bible lesson that the lights are starting to go off. He's telling them everything that's happening here, it's what Joel said would happen. We are entering the new day. The the new day is here. The power of the Spirit. And Jesus, you guys remember him? Well, he lived a life attested by the power of God. He died according to God's will, but you crucified him. And he rose because death could not hold him down, is what it says here. The cords of death entangled him, but he broke out of them. He defeated death. And this is in our Bible, he's saying. Remember that passage where David's saying, hey, you're not going to let your Holy One see corruption. He wasn't speaking of himself. He was prophesying that Jesus would be resurrected. And the scripture has been fulfilled. It was fulfilled 50 days ago. Right here, when he came back to life, is what he said. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. What did Jesus say in chapter 1? The Spirit's going to come, you're going to be my witnesses. Peter standing up and being a witness. We saw him. He is alive. He is raised by the power of God, proving that everything he said was true. Defeating the power of death. This changes everything. It's hard for us. We're so familiar with the Easter story, the resurrection of Jesus. It's hard for us to even imagine what it would be like to be a Jew in that crowd. A Jew in that crowd who maybe seven weeks ago was yelling, crucify, crucify, crucify. And now the light's going off. The scripture's being opened. The spirit is speaking. The light's going off. I, I killed them. I didn't nail his hands and feet, but my voice was in the crowd. I was opposed to him. I didn't believe him, but he was attested by God. And he died by God's plan. That was God's purpose, and I participated as an enemy of God. And he didn't stay buried. He rose. And this was foretold many, many years ago in the Psalms. So the lights are going off. These people are hearing it. For the first time, the life of Jesus, the death, the resurrection, and lastly, the ascension or the exaltation of Jesus. Look at the next verse. Verse 33, Therefore being exalted, At the right hand of God. So he is honored. He is lifted up to the right hand of God. He is enthroned. He is sitting on a throne. Having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That Jesus that you jeered, that Jesus that you mocked, that Jesus that you thought was crazy, that's what people thought some did, that Jesus that you thought was opposed to God the Father, He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and he's the one who's poured out the Spirit that's orchestrating all that you're saying. That Jesus. That Jesus. He quotes another psalm, Psalm 110. David says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until you make your enemies your footstool. That Jesus is at the right hand of God, and his enemies will one day be his footstool. Translation You do not want to posture yourself as an enemy of Jesus, for he is the exalted Lord. And most of you didn't even see it, is what he's saying. He is the Lord, he is the Messiah. That That is a big theme in the book of Acts. We're getting two themes that are going to be big in Acts here in this passage. One is that he's the Messiah, that he's the king. David was the great king, but he he looked for another king that would be enthroned eternally. That king is Jesus. He is your Messiah, Israel, the one we were all waiting for. He's the one, and he's ruling from heaven today. The second theme is the resurrection. We're going to see throughout the book of Acts, that's the lightning rod. That's the polarizing point. It is the message of the resurrection that separates people in in the book of Acts. And so he's preaching the resurrection. He's preaching the ascension, all of this right at the beginning. You missed him, he says, more than you missed him. It wasn't just ignorance. You crucified him. You rejected him is what he's saying. Now, in our culture, this almost sounds like—is that very loving? I mean, really, to just get a group of people saying, "What's going on here?" Point your finger and calling them murderers—you murdered God. Is that very loving? If it's true, it's the most loving thing that could be said because He's going to follow it up with the message of rescue and forgiveness. It's very loving. We don't. We don't. We. We don't. Uh, you know. We don't relish. And celebrate the idea that we oppose God by our nature, but we must we, we must acknowledge that, and we must see that in the first sermon ever preached in the Christian church that launched it off, it launched it. There's no bashful nature to the bold words that he preaches that bring a sense and a weight of responsibility for rejecting Christ that we should all feel by nature. And so look what he says in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ. God resurrected him. God exalted him. God made him king. This Jesus whom you crucified. He's going to explain to them what to do. What what is the effect of all of this news? Verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart, cut to the heart. They were laid open by this news. They are pierced. They are exposed. They are naked, as it were, before God with nothing to protect themselves. They are laid bare before God. Their consciences are laid bare. There are no defenses for their consciences at this point. See, when the Holy Spirit really speaks to someone like this, they're not like making excuses. Well, how could we know? Well, I only thought he was bad because the local Pharisee rabbi told me he was bad, so I was just doing... No, there's no excuses. Look at what they say. What shall we do? This is desperation. Brothers... (laughs) <laughs> they wanted to join him, right? Peter, brothers. Uh yeah, we're in we're with you, right? What do we do about this? He's dead. He's gone. What do we do? And this is what Peter says. There's tremendous hope. Repent. That means turn. Turn direction to stop, stop living in rejection of Christ and turn around. It means to change your mind, to go a different direction. Change your mind about Jesus. Move from enemy to believer. Move from I'm opposed to him. Move from I don't care about him. Move from apathy, he doesn't matter. How is he relevant to my life? To I need him. I love him. I follow him. I want to know him. Turn your direction. You don't have to continue. There is hope for you. And be baptized. Now implicit here is faith as well. As we go through Acts, what we're going to find out is when there are invitations given like this, we could say, um, sometimes it's just believe. Here there's no explicit statement about believe. It's repent. Sometimes it's repent and believe. So I think it's safest, if we read all of Acts, by the end you'll see, it's safest to say, turn and trust. Repent and believe. But believe is is implicit here. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, here's what you need to do. You need to be baptized. That's what a Gentile did when they wanted to become a Jew, is that they washed themselves... Or they were washed in baptism to become a Jew. He's saying you need to be baptized. You, those who are already Jews, you need to have your sins washed away, as it were. It, it represents that. Later, as we go through the New Testament, we'll see that baptism comes to be tied much more closely with the death, burial, and resurrection. That that one is identifying themselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's certainly in here because he says, do it in the name of Jesus. So you're being baptized in the name of Jesus, which means under his authority, identifying with him. And here's what he says, you'll receive forgiveness of your sins. That's why this is such good news. It's not good news. If they're not cut to the heart, it's not good news. It's like, okay, well, he's an option, Jesus, among all the other options. But when they're cut to the heart, he's the only option. This is good news. You can have all your sins forgiven. All your rejection of Jesus forgiven, forgotten about, washed away. And you will receive the gift of the Spirit. What we're experiencing right now, he's saying, you will have the same Spirit. The Spirit will come live in you. These last days when the Spirit is being poured out, the Spirit of God will come live in you. What's he saying to them? You're in serious trouble before Jesus for rejecting him and not believing in him because of your sins. But if you will turn and believe... And follow him in baptism, you will have every sin forgiven and you'll be made new on the inside. What more could anybody want? I mean, is that not really the dream of every person walking around today? Is it not really the dream to have a clear conscience? To have all your sins taken away from you so that you don't bear responsibility for your sins before God? A clear conscience, a peaceable conscience? a free conscience, and then to be a new person, the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you. That is the dream of everyone, a clear conscience and to be made new. Who doesn't want in on that? And that's what he promises them. And that's what I can promise you today, not because of me, because it's in the Bible. If you believe in Jesus and turn to him, you will have every sin forgiven. That is a freedom that you cannot even imagine. And you'll be made new. The Spirit of God will live in you. I love this. Verse 39. This promise is for you, your children, all who are far off. We're far off. Most of us are Gentiles. We are way far off in time and space and geography and culture and race. We're way far off from these people. And he reached us. How good is that? And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized there were added about 3,000 souls. At 9 a.m., they think it's a group of drunk people who are loud, yelling stuff out in foreign languages. I don't know how long this all took. Again, I don't think it was four minutes. I think he warned them with many other words. But at the end of all this, it's 3,120 people. And so these 120 people, or some of them, probably the apostles, baptized all these people. There were large pools of water, several of them in Jerusalem, some around the temple so that people could be cleansed, purified, ritually purified before temple worship. So people aren't getting ritually purified for temple worship this day. 3,000 people are getting baptized because they're taking an allegiance to Jesus. They believe in Christ. They believe he's the Messiah, that he's exalted. They're believing the end of the ages has come. The Spirit has been poured out. It's a new day. The Messiah has come. They missed it, but he's forgiving, and he is giving grace, and he is giving new life, and he is changing them. And so they're being baptized and joined together, and the church is born. It's a stunning day. It's a stunning event, absolutely stunning. And as we sit here today, the the same reality is open to every one of us. If you've never believed in Jesus, or if you're unsure, I just urge you, with Peter in the Bible here, to repent, to turn, to believe. You can have your sins forgiven. You can be free. You can be a new person. You can have the spirit of God dwell in you. You can have the certain hope of eternal life. You can be confident. Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, I will not cast him out. I'll not cast him away. I'll not reject him. If you come to Jesus, he will receive you. That's the promise of the scripture. It's a glorious, glorious good news. And if you have done that and you've not been baptized, then I urge you to be baptized because that's what the Scripture urges you to, is to be baptized. Do you have to be baptized to be saved? I think it's the wrong question. No, you don't. You have to believe, you have to repent. But part of believing in repentance is identifying with him publicly. On this day, these people were identifying publicly. They were making a statement about their faith. They were saying, hey, you killed him. We could be up next, but that's okay. We're going in the water. We're coming out of the water with new life. We have an allegiance to Jesus. There was a boldness that attended this act. There was an honoring of Christ that attended this act there was an obedience it's a command there was an obedience to Christ that attended this act they were following him as disciples disciple is a learner a follower someone who says you're my lord you are my king and my Christ i'm subject to my king and my Christ and i want to identify with what you have done for me by a public proclamation of my faith and baptism i want to identify that just as you were buried in the water buried and came back to life so i'm buried in the water momentarily And I come back to life. I have new life in Christ. I want to identify there's no one more precious to me than you, Jesus. I want to identify with you in baptism. So it's not do I have to do it to be saved. It's what a privilege to follow the Lord. What a privilege to announce that I am his, for he has forgiven my sins and given me new life. What a power that attends that. The Spirit poured out a boldness. I have seen people who have been baptized that would testify that at their baptism or following their baptism, there was a, a, a power in their life, a renewed power. Why is that? Because I think there's an obedience in Christ, there's a stepping out in faith, and a boldness in Christ that when we step out in boldness, the Spirit of God empowers us. It all goes together. So if you've never been baptized, there is something great for you. We don't have one scheduled, but come see me, see Pete, see Rob, uh, see Jeff, see one of the leaders, Tim, one of the leaders after church, and tell us you're ready to get baptized, and we'll schedule one ASAP. I want you to be baptized because it's a glorious event. Lastly, if you have believed, if you've repented, if you have new life, if you've been baptized... Then how do you view a passage like this? Well, I think the way we're supposed to view the passage like this is we are to come back and we are to say afresh to God, Lord, please do this in our day. May we We want to pray, we want to cry out for our need, and we want to trust the power of the gospel. How do the people come to Christ here? A guy stands up and talks about Jesus and explains who he is and what he's done, and the Holy Spirit gives new life. What's our plan for reaching people with the gospel? Somebody standing up and talking about Jesus and praying for the Spirit to come and give new life. Someone sitting across the table at Starbucks and talking about Jesus. Someone gathering for a dinner at the bridge here on Thursday nights and talking about Jesus. Someone having a phone call with a relative who's distant and talking about Jesus and praying for the Spirit of God to fall and to touch their hearts and open their eyes, to cut them to their heart, to say, I need the Lord, to share this glorious good news. In our day, I mean, there are so many ways, there's so many theories, so many practices So many ways that if we do this, people will be reached. If we do this, they won't be reached, or whatever it is. There's so many ideas about how you do it, how you connect, what you do. And there's stuff to be learned about there. But at the end of it all, it's someone opening their mouth and saying, the life of Jesus was this, the death of Jesus was this, the resurrection of Jesus was this. He's alive and offers forgiveness to anyone who will turn from their sins and believe. It's super simple. And then he's the one who brings the new life. So let's pray. Let's reaffirm our confidence and our faith that God wants to reach many people through us. And that that confidence and that faith is rooted in Christ acting as he acts here by the Spirit. Our plan is no different. Pray, testify in the power of the Spirit, announce good news, and watch God work. He doesn't always work like this. He doesn't always work like this in the book of Acts. Every time they stand up and preach, there aren't 3,000 people baptized on the spot. He doesn't always act like this. But he does. It It is his way to attend the announcement of the good news about Christ and give new life. That new life is available to you today, and that new life is available for all around us through us Let's root our confidence in the truth of the gospel and the power of the spirit. And let's pray for boldness. Let's pray for a boldness that God grants us to communicate his good news and love those who need him. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.